You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless with Mike Pudu in for Graham Hill. Sunday evening, how you doing, New Zealand? It's the Weekend Variety Wireless. Mike Pudu filling in for Graham Hill, the very clever Graham Hill, who caught up with the very clever Gerard Hindmarsh. He's written a book called Outsiders, Stories from the Fringe of New Zealand Society, a fascinating glimpse into the way New Zealand was shaped, really, back in the early days. And this Outsiders series that we look at tonight is from 1820, when the Russians came on a sort of museum artefact finding mission to New Zealand. Uh, that's a good yarn, isn't it? So welcome to your Sunday night audiobook on the Weekend Variety Wireless. This is Graham Hill and Jared Hindmarsh. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This uh, tale of some outsiders. Uh, distinctly outsiders in as much as God, hardly anyone's heard of them. And yet this is very early in New Zealand's history. A Russian expedition to New Zealand in 1820. Jared. The Russian expedition, the 1820 Russian expedition to New Zealand, it's quite unlike any other expedition really to early colonial New Zealand because it was marked by a mutual goodwill and curiosity between the two parties. Now, the substantial part of the expedition was spent in Queen Charlotte Sound because the, the um, Russian record keeping was so meticulous, it wasn't, it wasn't only the um, commander or captain that kept a log, but five uh, officers were required to keep it as well. And also we have a very good ship's artist as well, and there were paintings and drawings, but they also amassed one of the most significant collection of artefacts ever to leave these shores. This is still in St. Petersburg. It's, it's amazing, really, that this was the first great expedition that followed Cook really, quite a bit later 30 or 40 years, but it's funny that it sort of missed our history. It really shows how Eurocentric our history is. Yes, because the French get a fair look in as far as um, public knowledge of uh, who came here, Dufresne and Durville. Yeah, exactly. And we have had a lot of mistrust of the Russian bogey, if you like, you know, the communist thing and everything else ever since. And, and they spell funny. Oh, well, they do, yeah. And <laughs> this expedition, it was led by a really great Russian commander, um, Fabian Gottlieb van Belenchausen, his name was. He was a very skilled navigator and he was an astronomer, he was a hydrographer, and extremely enthusiastic about his explorations of the world. He came out in two ships. He commanded the lead ship, the 900-ton Vostok. We're talking about a very big ship here compared to... Um, Cook's ship, the Endeavour, was only 370 tonnes. The Vostok was a big ship. It had 28 cannons and it was accompanied by a slightly smaller ship, the Mernvi, and that was 531 tonnes and that had 20 cannons. It really was one of the most unusual encounters in this country's history. There was no exchange of hostilities. It was a cautious goodwill and there was no underlying design for sovereignty. I think that's 
what defines it. There was no possession or economic advantage. These type of encounters were absolutely rare in our colonial history. You know, and you've got to remember that Cook actually was over-enthusiastic and he exceeded his orders to simply raise the Union flag. That's all he was meant to do. And the British government was very careful to exclude New Zealand from the published list of its territories well after the Russian visit. So Balanchowson followed Cook, but it's a good point to make that they actually came as equals. 1820, New Zealand has very few Pākehā at that time, Europeans, right? Yeah, no, there were whalers and sealers that came very soon after uh, Cook, of course, and they left a bit of a bitter legacy. They were uh, a rough bunch, and they certainly didn't trust Māori people in many cases, and uh, they had a lot of altercations. Well, the reputation was they were freaking cannibals. Exactly. Pervidious, I think, was the word that Balanchowson was briefed with, which is distrustful, deceitful people. But the, the Russian expedition was Cook's legacy in some way, and it was Cook who transformed that business of discovery into a science, and by the early 19th century, it was no longer fashionable to roam the world. Expeditions were expected to collect and classify botanical or zoological specimens to observe stars or celestial phenomena and transits of Venus, and, and at the very least, they had to demonstrate some cartographic ability and produce a few charts. And this was the job of empire. Now, Britannia ruled the waves, of course, and her influence skirted France and Spain and stretched all the way to to, um, Russia, actually, the imperial court in St. Petersburg. And there was actually a Russian-English naval entente and the most promising Russian naval officers. And Balanchowson was one of these. He served in the English fleet to gain valuable experience in ocean voyaging. And there was also a reciprocal arrangement that saw English and Scots become a familiar sight in the Baltic fleet, actually. But once Tsar Alexander exercised quite a victory over Napoleon in 1812, that made England very, very nervous. What they did was, 1817, John Barrow, he was Secretary of the Admiralty Board, he addressed the House of Commons, and he insisted that an English expedition be organised northwards to find a great passage through the Arctic and it spurred the age of British Arctic exploration. Now in response, the Tsar Alexander I not only ordered a competitive polar expedition northwards but a simultaneous one south and he appointed his most promising commander if you like Balanchowson to be in charge of that so this is how the New Zealand expedition came about. Now Balanchowson, he was born in Estonia in September 1778. He was exactly like Cook. He showed great ability in anything nautical. Age 25, he accompanied the great commander, Krushenstern, first Russian expedition around the globe. That was for three years in 1803 to 1806. This Russian commander, he, he absolutely 
proved a strong influence on the young Lieutenant Balanchaus and stringent shipboard hygiene. There was a, a balanced diet and absolutely no theft or, or sexual familiarities with native peoples because they always led to pointless complications. And there was no ever, never to be any retribution by the gun. And it was this sort of code of ethics that exemplified this Russian expedition to New Zealand. And it was largely as a result of this admiral's urgings that the southern expedition took this strong ethnographic flavour. Their orders were to pass over nothing new, useful or curious that you may have a chance to see and anything that will widen any area of human knowledge. So they gave them some of the biggest ships they could. And interestingly, they loaded them up with tradable items. It was the biggest non-essential cargo that any ships had ever sailed. And two ships, of course, they took 400 knives, 20 garden knives, uh, 10 one-man saws, 10 crosscut saws, 40 chisels, 120 gimlets, 100 axes, 50 scissors, 30 flints and small belts and whistles, uh, 100 pounds of wire, horn combs, needles, rings, something like 10,000 odd needles or so, a thousand uh, mirrors. They knew that the Maori loved mirrors. They also carried hundreds of barrels of broken iron, nails and buttons, all cheaply obtained. Now they could use this to barter for anything like fish or minor items, but all those other items were used for the serious trading, for the ethnographic things that were to be bought back for the Museum. Right, this is yeah. a big collection expedition. Yeah, that's right. So the expedition it was very well outfitted and it set out from the port of St. Petersburg, July the 4th, 1819. The two ships stopped in Portsmouth where they had a meeting with the now venerable Sir Joseph Banks and that was their final briefing before they left Europe. Right, they were say, OK, you've been there. What's New Zealand like, Joseph? Yeah, and uh, he spent several days talking to them actually what to expect and good things to collect. And they carried on to um, Rio de Janeiro, loaded on fresh killed meat and uh, wine. All right, stopping off at Rio de Janeiro. Destination, one of them anyway, New Zealand. This little-known Russian expedition to New Zealand, our outsider tale today, under the Estonian commander Fabian Ballingshausen. The Weekend Variety. Wireless. Weekend Variety Wireless with Mike Pudu. We found some lost episodes of Outsider Stories from the Fringe of New Zealand Society by Jared Hindmarsh. This is kind of like a live audio book. Saves you reading it. You can listen to it, which is a lot safer if you're driving, isn't it? And Jared Hindmarsh, great eye for a story. Uh, you know, he talks about New Zealand society. And we're going right back to 1820 here. Uh, and a rich, I guess, tapestry of characters which have made us this great country we live in today. So let's continue with the lost episodes of The Outsiders from Jared Hindmarsh, the Russians back in 1820 who came to New Zealand on a, well, a museum finding mission really. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, the 1820 Russian expedition to New Zealand in particular Queen Charlotte Sound an expedition to go get stuff for museums uh, rather than colonisation or anything like that and a lesser known expedition to New Zealand when it was certainly still uh, predominantly a Maori nation here in 1820. Jared, 
Okay, these two ships were on a definite mission down to the southern latitudes. They had a brief to see if they could establish the boundaries of Antarctica, so they sailed straight down past South Georgia. They actually got to within 30 kilometres of what is now Princess Martha Land. Then they proceeded eastwards. They remained south of 60 degrees for a quarter of the globe before a striking north. Now, their next destination was Port Jackson. It was for a bit of a recharge of provisions and stuff in New South Wales and they arrived there on April the 10th 1820. Now the arrival of these two Russian naval ships in the English colony just created a complete stir and Captain Lazarus, he was on the smaller ship, he'd visited the colony actually six years earlier and uh, he actually could speak English and he acted as interpreter as all the colonists just came from near and far to admire these two vessels and they'd polished up all the guns, they had them displayed, they were a magnificent site at the wharf apparently. They spent a month there in the Australian port and then they struck a northerly course. They were going to take in the Tuamoto archipelago, that was in the Society Islands and they planned to spend the winter there in the, in the sort of warm latitudes but it was just day after day of terrible storms and they were driven towards New Zealand and on May the 18th, 1820 Balanchowson signalled his companion ship to abandon tack and to rendezvous in Queen Charlotte Sound. Now, the choice of Queen Charlotte Sound, it was no accident, as this was Cook's favourite anchorage, of course, and it listed prominently in an 1816 cruising guide called the Oriental Navigator. It was called Purdy's Oriental Navigator, and it was a known place of Maori habitation. Uh, Now, Cook estimated about 400 Maori lived there, and so this was their location that the Russians decided to go and they were going to anchor up there and basically fill the ship with as much as they could. They arrived at the mouth of Queen Charlotte Sound on May 27th, 1820. The wind had finally dropped. They spent 19 days just getting across the Tasman. It was a shocking trip. They were absolutely relieved to get there and Balanchowson studied the chart drawn by Cook 50 years earlier and he chose an anchorage in the lee of Motuar Island to wait for the other ship. They uh, made a great deal of comments actually how a couple of green parrots flew out and they amused the crew in the um, rigging while um, a whole lot of porpoises um, leaped and dived around the ship. This comment um, he makes, he said, we were now surrounded by high steep hills covered in forest and he said on the western side we noticed a fenced in place that appeared to be inhabited. It took till the following morning before two large canoes containing 39 men paddled out to meet them. Now, all the Russian crew were apprehensive and they'd heard about the accounts of the uh, nature of these New Zealanders were dangerous and fickle people and given to dark cannibalistic treachery and they'd all been talking about the slaughter of 10 men in the uh, crew of Captain Tobias Furno's crew who had been on that very same anchorage so they were all very nervous but when the canoes came alongside one of the chiefs stood up and he delivered a speech in a sonorous voice gesticulating but we understood nothing of what he said so I responded with the gestures of peace and friendship common to all peoples producing a white handkerchief and 
beckoning them towards me. And they took counsel amongst themselves and then promptly approached the ship. And he said, I invited the old man who had delivered the speech and who evidently was the chief to come aboard, which he did, trembling with nervousness and almost beside himself. What tribe is this we should know? It's 1820. Yeah, now, Rangitani, actually. It's these type of encounters that I just find fascinating. I just wish I was there to see it, you know? Yeah, now, but you've got to remember Totonui was a natural gateway between the two main islands. It was a sort of nexus of trade for some 15 tribes bordering um, Raukawa, which was Cook Strait. And there was a natural flow and ebb in the population. And they possibly were not even the same people Cook had described, of course. The tribes are sort of like the Naitara, the Rangitani, the, the Natiapa, the Naitahu, Kuia and Tamatakokuri. They were probably the tribes, but while the Pacific tribal grouping of the time of Balanchiasa's visit may be uncertain, one thing is sure, Graham, and that was the entire tribal population was wiped out seven years later by Tarapraha's musket-wielding Ngāti Toa and Ngāti Tiatiawa allies. Right. The raid bordered on genocide. You know, there's almost a complete break in traditional regional history from the area about this time. Yeah. And this is the reason the Russians still hold on to these artefacts, basically, because... Uh, I don't think many of them have realised, the Maori tribes today have quite realised the importance of it and where it quite came from. I know that sounds sort of crazy, but there hasn't been a definite lineage back for it. There's rights of conquest, of course, but even the um, shrunken heads, the smoked shrunken heads that they took back are still there in the cabinet in the St Petersburg Museum. Good heavens, who would have thought? I bet you quite a few New Zealanders might just pop into the St Petersburg Museum and have no idea that that stuff is there and go, goodness me. Yeah, and they're some of the most wonderful artefacts. And when I did a story for the New Zealand Geographic about this, the Geographic Centre photographer over to Russia, actually, we were just astounded at some of these photos that came back. We had to pay, uh, it was, we had to pay, I think it was 2500 to even get access to the collection. A lot of it's in the basement, but uh, it was basically a bribe, I tell you. They don't have the same sharing agreements in place with Europe European museums where some of these artefacts have come back. So they hold on to them very staunchly, actually, and they consider them theirs, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. There is that bristling Russian pride. Uh, a lot of it, uh, defensiveness, actually, is, which they should stop. OK, well, tell us about some of these tradings that went on and what was given for what, because it's these encounters I find the most fascinating thing. How, pe- how one culture meets another. Yeah. Now, after their initial encounter with the two canoes, the Russians let off a few rockets to announce our arrival to the natives living in the interior. And Balanchiasen thought it probable that the following morning they would assemble to visit us from various localities in large numbers. But unlike Cook, who estimated there were about 400 Maori living there um, in that area bounded by uh, Motuara, Ship Cove and Little Waikawa Bay, uh, the Russians, they actually found a depleted population, probably no more than 
80. They immediately became a trading encounter. This is quite interesting. More and more canoes turned up and it seems like the entire population of Maoris there ended up after two days or so just to make sure that everything was right. They let them on board and the decks of the two Russian vessels became like a huge bazaar and the Maoris were absolutely just so happy that the Russians were into trading so they bought more and more stuff out all the time, everything from fish to artefacts, spears, birds, everything that they could bring and the Russians were delighted too. So they bought out their cargo and this trading went on day after day. It was quite interesting. Now, they describe the Maori here, um, Simonov, he was the expedition's astronomer. His account's probably one of the best, actually. It gives quite an insight into Maori at this time. He said, the New Zealanders were of middling height and solid build with swarthy expressive faces on which we observed various designs. They showed much animation and a full fire full of martial spirit shone in their eyes. With us, they proved to be well behaved and even quiet, recognising the superiority of our force and knowing the effectiveness of our armaments. So Bellinghausen's insistence on good conduct now on both sides right from the outset. Now this undoubtedly was an important factor in why the expedition was successful. Now in Simonov's description he said the Maori would point to the cannon uttering the word poo with some fear indicates they were already conversant with European firepower from the sealers and whalers that followed Cook. And despite the language barrier communication was very very quickly established because because they had a few key words which was gleaned from a handy copy of Cook's voyages which they took with them. They were delighted, as I said, with the Russian desire for trade and they visited the ships in increasing numbers and proved seasoned barterers and the decks assumed a sort of market atmosphere as a handful of authorised officers conducted the barter for everything from fresh fish, crayfish, garments, weapons, carvings and ornamental objects. Right, these little trading bazaars on board, on so many occasions they've gone horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, Did they go okay? They did. Of course, Bellinghausen made it his point that all the guns were to be displayed, all the crew were armed, there was a protocol of how things were done. He talks more often about all the unexpected displays of wonderment and humour, actually, and they invited the chief. He said, I invited the chief into our cabin to dine with us. We seated him in the place of honour between Lazarus and myself. He picked up and examined with astonishment all the table utensils then carefully, awkwardly, he put food in his mouth with his fork. We continued to assure one another of mutual friendship by various signs and means of a few native words that I knew. But when later, wishing to give him more convincing proof of my goodwill, I made him a present of a beautiful, well-polished and sharp axe. And he jumped up from the table for joy and rushed up to the deck towards his countrymen, 
having embraced me, joyfully repeating toki toki, which means axe axe, we regaled the other New Zealanders with biscuits, fat, sin, gruel and rum. They ate everything heartily, but one cup of rum sufficed them all. Such sobriety on their part serves as proof that they can only really have been visited by the enlightened Europeans who, wherever they settle, teach the natives to drink spirits and to smoke and chew tobacco. All right. We'll take a break and more of this extraordinary encounter with Northern South Island Maori, 1820, the Russian expedition led by Commander Fabian Gottlieb Bellingshausen. The Weekend Variety Wireless. And it's the Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike Pudu, filling in for Graham Hill. I know, I'm not, I'm not lazy. These are just outsider excerpts from Jared Hindmarsh that we thought we'd lost, but we have found. And this is a great yarn, too, about 1820s and the Russians coming. Let's return to the replay of this incredible chat. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, the Russian expedition led by Fabian Bellingshausen to New Zealand in 1820. This sounds like a beautifully depicted encounter of trade, as I mentioned earlier, gosh, these things can go horribly wrong. Uh, somebody asks for something that they can't have, mistreats something that has spiritual value, or steals something and guns go off and scraps happen. Didn't happen this time in 1820. No. As he said, he established a trustworthy relationship with the native inhabitants of New Zealand. Now, now, now do we know the name of the, the chief or any of the people that came out and visited the ship? No. He describes one of them as a rangatani, which is as close as I think we'll get, actually. Okay. So it's sort of interesting they never quite got their names, but after two days relating to them from the relative safety of these ships, the Russians now accepted invitations to go ashore. Now, the first thing Balanchowson did was assemble his men, and he reminded all of them, the very ocean-weary, of course, at that point, and on no account were they to engage in any sexual familiarities with Maori woman. And, of course, this was... Um, motivated by fear of complication and he was a Lutheran actually Balanchowson but he made no attempt and almost made it a order that no one was to preach the gospel in New Zealand and the Murray actually carried an obligatory priest but not once in the two year voyage does he rate a mention in any of the accounts Good heavens, that's unusual for the day isn't it? Because I usually look at these people as heathens and the most important thing in their entire lives would be to accept Jesus Christ. Yeah, he, he, he placed very little value on the priest's work in this voyage. He was out to get the examples of ethnographica and that was it. He wasn't on any mission to convert any natives. Well, I'm liking him more and more. Yeah, well, he set out in two cutters. They mounted each one with a swivel gun. They all took a firearms and uh, besides all this, they each had a pair of pistols and he says we had no cause to fear any treachery by the natives. And, of course, where, where they were going, they were heading straight 
wait for Cannibal Cove, where um, Cook had actually witnessed a feast of human flesh. Yeah. yeah. Now, as soon as they got close to the shore, the villagers all scattered, and so one man met them with the greatest timidity. But when they showed him kindness, all the others came out. And at this stage, uh, he made a few presents to the chief and his wife and to the daughter and gave her a mirror so she could compare herself with the other woman to her own advantage. And they presented him with a piece of cloth made of New Zealand flax with a patterned border. And the chief's wife suggested more barter and they agreed. And then they came to another little par just along the bay and they met the old Rangatira who had greeted them on their arrival in Queen Charlotte Sound and he wanted to show them equal hospitality and so he selected a, a reasonably young woman but one whose face was pretty repulsive as Belenchausen said and offered her to him as a temporary wife and uh, he declined the man um, patting him on the back and he said very likely Europeans who have visited this place before us have encouraged them in the pursuit of such shameful trafficking. So now they really got into bartering and interesting, they exercised considerable discrimination in the acquisition of Maori artefacts. Now, wherever possible, they always made a point of two examples of each type including an exquisite range of winter garments. Now, not only winter finished winter garments, but always in a process of being woven. So in various stages of manufacture, because they appreciated the fact that an unfinished specimen of weaving often reveals more than a finished article. Yeah, if you ever have that question, how they do that? It's answered with an unfinished one. They often took 10 different examples in its construction. And apart from one ornate feather cloak, all the voyager's garments were made solely from flax and some pounded as fine as silk. Now, they were amazed at these garments. They were very, very impressive. And we think that flax garments, harakiki garments, can be stiff and hard to wear, almost scratchy, if you like. But how they used to be made, they were works of art, Graham. They really were. They certainly cleaned this lot out of all their good garments, actually, and uh, traded them for mirror and all sorts of things. Now, the ship's artist, his name was Pavlov Mikovlov, off and uh, it was his job to sketch all noteworthy places visited and portray native peoples and their dress and games. Now he put out some fabulous pictures of the harkers, he really did. It was interesting though, they sort of fell into a Eurocentric trap, sort of what the Europeans used to do. One of the accounts goes, some of them reminded me of ancient Romans I had seen in prints, especially when the New Zealand mantle hung from their shoulders and feathers fluttered on their heads. Of course, their regular and pleasing countenances were spoiled by a certain wildness or by the tattoos with which they carefully covered various parts of their body. It was quite interesting, that, because the ship's artists often put European faces on, I mean, you can see them in these prints, actually, European faces on the men doing the haka, for instance. 
Yeah, and they took a particular note of the wooden fish hooks and, and the fishing lines. They noticed that they had different hooks for different species and how effective these hooks were. And this has been an interesting little debate about hooks, of course, for a long time in New Zealand. All the early explorers poo-pooed all the Maori hooks. They always said they were useless hooks. So how could they even catch a fish? And it wasn't actually until 2007, actually, that Chris Paulin from Tapapa proved that the Maori hook were actually far more effective than these English-style J-hooks. And if you notice, our hooks have slowly been changing since then to go more circular. It's a fascinating thing, but the Russians were, um, like all the other explorers who'd come, they made a lot of comment about the hooks. They made a lot of comment about the songs that the Maori sung. The women were always pleased to give them a concert. And they also made a lot of comment about the native bird song too, which created enormous impressions and Simonoff wrote, he said, the beautiful singing of land birds echoed like a piano accompaniment of flutes. Certainly we have long been deprived of such pleasure, nor do I recall having heard such a harmonious choir of songbirds anywhere in the five remaining parts of the earth. Wow. Yeah. He's not the only one who's remarked upon that. No. Uh, it just makes you wonder, in that chorus of birdsong, so many species that just aren't around today. Huia, Peel Peel. That's right. And they also were interested in what the Maori ate. They commented on the long rows of baskets containing sweet potatoes just dug out of the earth. And they said, we took a few with us on boiling them. We found them very tasty and not inferior to English potato. Now, following Cook's example, the Russians gave Maori seeds of all sorts of things, turnips, swedes, carrots, pumpkins, broad beans and peas, and instructed them in the um, sowing as well. And they understood very well, apparently, and were really pleased, and they promised to plant the seeds in all their plots. So that was interesting. And in return, Balanchowson collected flax seed for planting in the southern Crimea, which was interesting. And, you know, after I did that geographic story, I got a letter from the Crimea, actually, from a museum curator who said that they'd always wondered where the flax had come from that had been there since the uh, mid-19th century. And it had been replanted by Balanchowson, would you believe it? Yeah. And there's a thriving grove of this New Zealand... Marlborough flax right there in the Crimea and they've always wondered where it came from but they said my story had actually solved it. Nice. <laughs> I was quite tickled by that. Anyway they stayed about 12 days I think it was in Queen Charlotte Sound and they felt like they'd had a good encounter with them. They made an interesting comment that it was an enlightened age that two people could trade like this and talk like this and communicate and I think the, everyone felt like the expedition was a huge success but on June the 2nd 1820 the barometer plummeted and Balanchowse had feared the worst as huge waves crashed against the ship and it dragged its anchor and, and it necessitated the dropping of a second. They almost lost one of the ships actually and they said all that day was a troubled one and lightning flashed and thunder echoed in the mountains and there was no improvement in sight after about two days and Balanchowson ordered the anchors weighed and Simonoff, he records a, an absolutely emotional farewell. He said the New Zealanders were on board our ship for the last time and by signs their chief expressed his 
sincere regret on seeing our preparations for a prompt departure. There was even some natives amongst them who would have agreed to sail with us to Europe, but the chief watched very carefully to make sure that no one remained with us. No, interesting. I was going to ask if anyone stayed aboard. It's quite a popular pastime. It was, and one particular young New Zealander, he said, entreated us on his knees to take him along and promised to work diligently on the sloop. With the captain's permission, we gave him to understand that the decision to remain with us was his to make. Our consent delighted him, but his desire had not remained hidden from the elders who almost forcibly obliged their enterprising fellow tribesmen to return to shore. Oh, I wonder what trouble he was in at home. Yeah, and with vexation and sadness, he placed his nose against mine and slowly went down into the family's canoe. They weighed anchor and the sails filled and they left the sound. So that was the end, really, of the visit. They uh, they did um, travel along the New Zealand coast a bit, but that was really the encounter. It wasn't a terrifically long one, but it made a huge impression. All right, well, um, a happy encounter. Maybe they got lucky, maybe they were particularly stunningly diplomatic on both sides and people had learned a thing or two. All right, we'll take a final break, come back with the legacy of this visit from this Russian expedition, 1820, to Queen Charlotte Sound. Twelve days of a good old bazaar. The Weekend Variety Wireless. As the Weekend Variety Wireless, Mike filling in for Graham, we found some lost episodes of The Outsiders. Let's get back to the last part for this evening. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. The visit of two Russian ships to Queen Charlotte Sound, Marlborough, popular spot for explorers in the day, um, to collect artefacts from New Zealand. It's headed by Fabian Bellingshausen and... Spent 12 days, things have gone rather swimmingly. Jared, do we have anything in our museums of the stuff that the Russians gave the Maori? No, not really. They basically gave them plants and... No mirrors or anything? Oh, I see. No, there appears to be nothing like that. And as I said, the people that they related to in 1820 were completely wiped out. Oh, right, yes, yeah. So whatever they had would have been pillaged and taken away and the the provenance of it would barely have been known, probably. Yeah, yeah, the provenance would be difficult, although oh, you never know. There are some amazing things. Have you seen the, uh, the resolution? metal. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, It's got a little drilled hole in it and that was given to somebody during Cook's visit. Oh, amazing. The resolution visit, anyway. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, the legacy of this exploration. Okay, Okay, so they sailed north from New Zealand. They went home via the Society Islands and they continued to cram artefacts into every available space on board the two ships. These two ships went back to Russia totally jam-packed. They returned to St. Petersburg on August 1821. They'd been away nearly three years and the expedition unloaded its precious cargo of Ethnographica which orders required 
required to be immediately handed over to the Naval Ministry. Now, uh, interestingly, it wasn't carried out to the letter. Now, Simon of the astronomer, he no doubt realised the unsuitability of a military establishment being entrusted with the care and study of his priceless collection. And in a way, he was in charge of these collection. And whatever his intentions at the time, the practice of acquiring duplicates served him well. For the seems this guy just simply walked off with a substantial part of the cargo. And uh, these items would later form the basis of the Simonoff collection at the University of Kassan, of which he became the rector. So he personally took those. But for seven years, the main collection of Maori artefacts stayed in the Navy's keeping and before being transferred to what is now part of the St. Petersburg Ethnographic Museum. Now, there are discrepancies between the original expedition accounts and what's in the collection and uh, lost somewhere in the intervening period of specimens of some of the best specimens of the Maori weaving, some javelins as they were called, bone needles and, and a flute or pipe. They also talk about the bludgeons made of greenstone which were collected but there's only one Maori made of nephrite in the museum and Simonoff is known to have brought back two mummified heads um, these have disappeared, actually, but there are still um, another three in the collection. So they're still in Russia, there's no doubt, but the demand for artefacts was so strong that even items collected by Cook made their way into that country in Russia. There was a, a, a very learned part of Russian society, and they were fascinated by the New Zealand Maori people. They were always after the curios, interestingly. Balanchowson, he had a bit of a, ah, oh, he suffered a setback actually when one of his officer crew was arrested for taking part in the 1825 Decemberist uprising. Now, the Tsar treated that with absolute contempt, anyone who'd taken part in the uprising, and the fact that Balanchowson had actually named an island in the Pacific after this traitor came to Tsar Nicholas' attention, and the um, publication of Balanchowse's journals were put on hold for a whole decade because of that and it was only on the urging of the Chief of Naval Staff who pointed out that Balanchowse's discoveries might, quote, bring honour not to Russians but to foreigners if they were not published that the Tsar relented and they published 600 copies of Balanchowse's visit. It was printed in 1831. I think he eventually got a uh, posting as a governor, uh, a Constrat, so he ended up okay, but it was a very uh, up and down time in Russia at that time. There was a lot of feudal uprisings, and it was interesting that Balanchowson got caught up in that just because of his one association with one of his officers, actually. New Zealanders virtually remained unaware of the Balanchowson expedition, and, and, and it took a book, actually, in 1907 by Robert McNabb, and he made reference to it in his book, Mirahiku and the Southern Islands. It was published in 1907. It was subsequently published an English translation of the New Zealand section of Balanchowson's journal in 1909. And until then, absolutely no one knew anything about it. And it's still the fact that Russia is still the repository of one of the most significant collections of Maori treasures outside this country. You know, it's a sort of tribal complexity and obliteration of ancestry has prevented it from being 
even noticed even by the Maori people itself, Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or if you get wiped out, the memory Yeah. Goes. Did you go to St Petersburg and try and see these artefacts? No, of course, New Zealand Geographic, they could only afford the photographer, and even then he was actually, uh, I think he was in Russia on another assignment, actually, but Malcolm Ferguson was the photographer from New Zealand. They employed him to go and photograph this collection. New Zealand Cabinet is the most obvious thing that everyone sees in St Petersburg Museum, but they have a lot of stuff in their basement as well still. He finally got access. I think he had to pay a bribe of $2,500, I think it was at the time. He he got access and he came back with some of the most fantastic pictures that appeared in the article actually so uh, unfortunately I, I wasn't in on that part of it. The Russians kept up this interest in New Zealand even in the 1860s the official Russian naval journal was publishing articles like um, New Zealand wood and the danger of entry into Manuko and that's spelt with a K-O at the end instead of Manukau Fabian Bellingshausen what happened to him? He, he continued to serve in the Russian Navy and he saw active service in the Danube during the war with Turkey in 1828 to 29, absolutely distinguished himself and he was finally appointed governor of a port of Kronstolt in 1839. That was a pretty important position because that was the entry point to St Petersburg and there's a fabulous portrait of him that exists. It was painted in 1840, about the time that was made an admiral and he died in 1852 and one of the most distinguished careers out of any Russian commander. Mm. Amazing, we don't know his name, of course. It is astounding, really. You know, we know a lot about Derville and, and everyone else. Derville came much the same time, you know, and how much is written about him, an astounding amount. Yeah, and Dufresne have gotten all sorts of bloody trouble. It doesn't take much. And maybe it's the trouble, Graham, that cements your, your sort of <laughs> your reputation in history rather than a, a perfect mission, if you like. If it bleeds, it leads. Conflict is of interest. Yeah, yeah. Hey, fantastic story. And, you know, maybe there are some artefacts that we have here, reciprocal to them having ours in St. Petersburg. Maybe a little piece of mirror or something is mm. uh, stacked away somewhere. Anyway, Jared, thank you very, very much. And don't forget, listeners, there's the Outsiders Archive on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, full of great stories. Jared, thanks very much. Thank you, Graham. done for this evening that has me done for this weekend as well thank you so much to every single person that has contributed to the show to the fantastic guests over the last two nights and also to graham hill who's trusted me to look after the show hopefully you've enjoyed it i'm still thinking too about those questions i asked at the end of last hour if you had the chance to answer i guess or get answered three big questions as in who done it cases what three would they be for you i'll leave you
you with that thought and I'll leave you as well because it is time for new sport and weather. Thanks to the producers, Sarah and Yasmin, for all your help. Also to Brad as well. It's overnight talk coming up in just a minute. The phone lines will swing open. So make sure you are ready to go. 0800 844 That is the number here for Radio Live. Have a fantastic night and I'll catch you back next time. It's been an absolute pleasure.